Hello, I'm your host, Alexandra Leal, and welcome back to Democracy Is, a podcast presented by California Common Cause. Just this month, the City of Oakland City Council voted to put a massive campaign finance reform on the November ballot. Campaign finance may sound boring, but because this measure has the potential to change the way money is handled when it comes to financing campaigns, it has the potential to change who holds power in our politics. So, in this episode, we will be exploring how democracy is influenced by money and politics. In an ideal political system, candidates earn votes with good ideas and adept communication with voters. Effective policies, passion, and powerful personal narratives are rewarded, while destructive candidates focused solely on personal enrichment are shunned. However, that's not how many elections in the United States tend to operate. That's because candidates are competing for more than just votes. They're competing for money. Money for TV ads, mailers, polling, speaking venues, and staff for their campaigns. And unlike votes, of which each voter only has one, different Americans have different amounts of money. This incentivizes candidates to focus on pleasing the wealthiest Americans while ignoring those who can't afford to donate hundreds or even thousands of dollars to a campaign. In turn, a vicious cycle is created where wealthy individuals and special interests support the candidates that serve their interests. This adds to their wealth and power, which then increases these individuals and special interests' ability to fund their candidates of choice. For many decades, advocates used something called campaign finance reform to limit the amount of money that could be spent in our politics, to prevent corruption, and to ensure that a tiny minority doesn't have a disproportionate sway over our democracy. But in recent years, the Supreme Court has eliminated most of the tools these advocates used, under the logic that money is how people make their voices heard, and limiting how much money someone can use in our politics is the same way as limiting their free speech rights. Many of the campaign finance reforms that for decades helped control money in politics are, thanks to the Supreme Court, now considered impermissible violations of the First Amendment. Fortunately, the situation is not as hopeless as one might think. And today, we're gonna to see how money has come to so heavily impact our democracy and what steps we can still take to make elections more inclusive, fair, transparent, and driven by we, the people. Money has been intertwined with politics throughout our nation's history. We could go all the way back to the beginning, but the modern chapter of money in politics begins with an event that until recently had gone uncontested as the most egregious political scandal in recent American history. Watergate. The individuals that perpetuated the Watergate hotel break-in targeting an office of the Democratic Party were members of a campaign and fundraising organization supporting President Richard Nixon. That organization was called Committee for the Re-Election of the President, often and hilariously abbreviated as CREAP. This outright criminality by an election advocacy group kicked off months of national scandal and prompted Congress to give a long, hard look at existing legislation on campaign finance policy. The fallout of the break-in revealed tons about how money was working at the highest levels of American politics. Watergate ripped back the curtain on how the Nixon White House was approaching campaigning and its practices, which ranged from keeping a safe full of cash on hands at all times, 
to bugging political opponents. What followed was a protracted battle between advocates of campaign finance reform and those that wish for the dollars to flow freely from bank accounts to political candidates. The post-Watergate era saw the strengthening of many laws and creation of many watchdog entities which were designed to shine a light on money in politics, including some in government, like the Federal Elections Commission, and some outside of government, like Common Cause. But as time went on, the Supreme Court would roll back many of the laws that originated in the Watergate era, and politicians found new ways to make sure money could flow freely in our politics. Around the turn of the century, Republican Senator John McCain and Democratic Senator Russ Feingold tried to address some of these issues. Among other things, they put an end to so-called soft money, that is, unlimited donations that could be raised by the national political parties from individuals, unions, or organizations for federal races. 23 states passed similar or more restrictive legislation aimed at ridding state politics of so-called soft money. Arguably, this was the zenith of campaign finance law in the United States. Addressing money in politics was making progress, and it had bipartisan support. But that period of progress ended with a rightward shift in the Supreme Court that corresponded with the arrival of Chief Justice John Roberts. You may be familiar with one of his most famous rulings of his tenure, countless pieces of bipartisan legislation to rein in money in politics across the U.S. were obliterated in a single savage blow struck by the Supreme Court in Citizens United versus FEC. Citizens United eliminated the ban on independent expenditures by corporations or labor unions. Independent expenditures are political expenditures that are about a candidate but not made by the candidate's campaign. Imagine you were running for class president and you found out that someone bought posters and was putting them up in hopes of getting you elected, but they weren't a member of your campaign team. Those are independent expenditures. In Citizens United, the Supreme Court said that money is speech and protected under the First Amendment. As a result, it can only be regulated for very limited reasons, like in order to stop corruption and or the appearance of corruption. So if a corporation gave $10,000 to a politician's campaign, that would create a risk of corruption. The politician would accept the money and give the corporation votes that it wanted in return. But if a corporation spends a million dollars in support of a politician, but does so independently of the politician's campaign and without telling them about it in advance, then somehow, in the view of the Supreme Court, that lack of coordination means the $1 million can't corrupt the politician. A subsequent court ruling created the super PAC. If a political action committee was allowed to spend unlimited amounts on independent expenditures, then it should be allowed to raise unlimited amounts of money as well. Essentially, the super PAC is an entity that can fundraise as much as it wants without limitation and spend as much as it wants without limitation. And thus, the floodgates opened. These rulings and others from the Supreme Court have made sure that money is the lifeblood of our politics. And this has a number of impacts. It helps ensure that income inequality is replicated as political inequality. Those with more money can spend more money and thus speak more loudly, which in turn results in more income inequality. It gives more fundraising tools to those in power and those who know the inside game, helping incumbents further secure their place in office. 
and it interacts with the racial wealth gap, a longtime phenomenon in this country, which generates a structural exclusion of people of color from power. The idea that people have unequal access to our democracy isn't an opinion, it's a fact. When candidates first decide to run, they are put to the test in what is known as a money primary. This is an opportunity for candidates to show if they can fundraise effectively, and it can be a make or break point in the early stages of their campaign. Candidates who come from wealthy backgrounds can rely on their friends, family, and other connections to support them, or they can donate money to their own campaigns, which leaves candidates who come from low-income backgrounds at a major disadvantage. There's a real need for any candidate in California to have money because it costs over $1 million, whether you're being elected to the Assembly or to the Senate, just to be competitive in these races. Noah Cole, a policy analyst who is authoring a report on public financing, recently came on our monthly Lunch with Common Cause Facebook Live to discuss public financing and its impact on money in politics. He spoke to the realities of how money is central to a campaign. And that money, a lot of times, is used just to get their message out through mailers, through digital advertising. And so there's a real need to have money in order to get your message out and staff up your campaign. The biggest thing that I found when speaking with candidates is that having to compete with a competitor who was backed by an independent expenditure group, a political action committee, was really difficult because even if they did raise a good amount of small dollar donations, they were having to compete against independent expenditures that could easily outspend them and just send out more mailers to pockets of the community that they just couldn't get to with their resources. So that was one, just the difficulty of competing against another candidate who might have had an independent expenditure group. You may have given to a presidential candidate during the 2020 election, but the reality is that your contribution, though valiant, is nothing compared to what is coming out of the quote-unquote donor class. This comes with obvious racial equity implications. The data has also shown us that more than 90% of campaign contributions over $200 come from majority white zip codes, and the biggest donors of both parties are 100% white. If you don't have access to a wealthy network per se. And that's time that takes away from interacting directly with small donor constituents and really getting your message out to you know a wide array of voters. The districts in California are, are very big and it's a lot of people to conduct outreach to. So time is really important when it comes to running for these elections. And a lot of the candidates I spoke with talked about how they wish they could have had more time to speak with small donors instead of having to make phone calls to large donors. We need our politicians to listen to us, to understand what our daily struggles are, but they are less inclined to do so because they know we don't have the power to write their checks. When they spend all their time listening to a tiny sliver of the American public, they naturally care more about that sliver's priorities. This disparity is even reflected in who gets elected to office. In 2021, more than 7,000 elected official positions were held by Latinos, and while that is a 75% increase since 2001, Latinos and Asian Americans make up over 23% of the population. And yet, only 2% of elected officials identify as Latinos and less than 1% identify as AAPI. Given numbers like these, many Americans feel the game is rigged against working class folks and people of color. And that will remain as long as the winners of this rigged game continue to write the rules. But we here at California Common Cause refuse to believe that all hope is lost. 
Big money might be here to stay, at least until the Supreme Court changes, but solutions do still exist. Something called public financing is starting to make its entrance onto the stage of American politics. If we can't tamp down on big money, maybe we can amplify little money to balance it out. For all of the damage wrought by Citizens United and other Supreme Court decisions, they left public financing for elections intact. Public financing is when the government provides public funds to candidates for use in their campaigns, meaning they don't have to go fundraise from wealthy donors and special interests and can listen to regular people instead. It also means candidates who don't have personal money or networks of wealth can run and win anyway because they have public dollars to use in their campaign instead. Public financing is usually split into two categories, matching funds and democracy dollars. The first type of public financing is called matching funds. As the name suggests, the government matches an individual small donor contribution to a qualified candidate. The big thing is that a lot of cities that implement matching funds programs have a multiple match. So rather than matching $5 to $5, they might have a four to one match, in which case the candidate would receive $20 of public funding from uh, the city or whatever entity that they're being elected to for their campaign. And that way, small donors are able to increase their influence because their $5 are turning into a multiplied $20 instead of gave. For example, in the city of Berkeley, the voters adopted a ballot measure that creates a matching program where eligible candidates are able to receive a six to one match up to $60. If you were a resident in Berkeley and donated $50 to a candidate in Berkeley, your candidate would receive $300 from the city and $50 from you. This allows regular people who don't have the capacity to donate substantial amounts of money to maximize the impact of their contribution and the strength of their voices. And for candidates, it means it makes as much sense to walk the block and knock on doors as it does to hold a fundraising reception with lobbyists and wealthy donors. In Berkeley, with a new public matching funds program, a higher proportion of first-time candidates ran for office compared to previous elections, where seats were dominated by candidates with the most money. Additionally, contributions from donors outside of Berkeley sharply decreased from 33% to 10% for all candidate funding, reducing the influence of wealthy donors outside of the very community whose government they were trying to influence. The second kind of publicly financed elections is called democracy dollars, also known as democracy vouchers. Democracy dollars are vouchers distributed to eligible residents that are equal to a certain cash amount. This program gives residents of all backgrounds and income levels a chance to contribute to political candidates in office. In 2015, a democracy dollar program was passed in Seattle. Seattle's democracy dollars program was implemented in 2017 and provided eligible voters with four $25 vouchers for use in city council and mayoral elections. Seattle's program turned every household into a donor household, which had profound impacts. It dramatically increased the number of small dollar donors in the city's politics and dramatically increased the diversity of those donors. New people could run for office because they could fundraise from their neighbors and community. And candidates had a reason to outreach to families, neighborhoods, and communities they would otherwise ignore. If there are four adults in a household that rarely vote, normally a candidate skips them. Now they've got $400 there that they can raise. And if the candidates engage, listen, and share their solutions, they might receive them. The Democracy Dollars program in Seattle also has been shown to catalyze greater civic engagement and voter participation. A 2021 study 
found that a first-time eligible voter who used at least one Democracy Dollars voucher in Seattle's 2017 municipal elections was almost 12 times more likely to vote than a similarly situated person who did not. Um, there were effects in, in Seattle related to um, increasing the voter turnout even among um, residents in, in Seattle. Uh, but overall, they found that uh, participation as a whole increased significantly among small donors in the city of Seattle, which was a major finding like because of the effect that vouchers had on participation in the elections. A democracy dollars program can be a vehicle for which a broader range of individuals are drawn into a city's local democracy. Here at California Common Cause, we support public financing because we want to boost the power of small donors and everyday people, create more diversity among candidates running for office and donors, and ensure that elections are won, not bought. After speaking with so many people, I was really inspired by how many people are motivated and really committed to making these programs work and increasing the number of uh, small donors in our elections. So really excited about the potential for this in the long term in the state of California. People who don't have backing from big special interests, their personal networks and insider political organizations can nevertheless run for office and win when publicly financed elections are implemented. California Common Cause has won major public financing victories in the past, such as when we successfully lobbied for the Los Angeles City Council to increase its matching fund program in a series of steps from one to one to six to one, and when we partnered with others to pass a six to one matching system in the city of Berkeley. Currently, California Common Cause is a partner organization in Fair Elections Oakland, a coalition of community groups and nonprofits trying to create a democracy dollars program in Oakland, modeled after Seattle's program. Unfortunately, Oakland is a perfect example of how money flows in our local politics. Shockingly, Half of campaign contributions during 2014, 2016, and 2018 city elections in Oakland came from people or groups outside of Oakland itself. Of the money raised by Oakland candidates from Oakland residents, more than 80% came from less than 1% of the city's population, a tiny sliver of folks that disproportionately live in the wealthy Oakland Hills. Simply put, Oakland's campaigns are not really financed by Oakland's people. To give power to all Oakland residents, the Oakland Democracy Dollars Program would send four $25 vouchers to its residents, like in Seattle, by putting money, and thus power, back in the hands of the people. Moneyed interests outside of Oakland and a small group of wealthy donors will no longer be able to dictate who is a viable candidate in the city's politics. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, Oakland Democracy Dollars just hit a major milestone. In mid-July, Oakland City Council voted to put the Oakland Fair Elections Act on the November ballot. The Oakland Fair Elections Act would increase disclosure of who paid for campaign ads and increase transparency for independent expenditures. It would also lower campaign contribution limits, tighten restrictions on lobbying by former government officials, and increase funding and staffing for the city's ethics commission, its local political watchdog. And perhaps, most importantly, it would create the nation's second democracy dollars public financing system. This is a huge victory. And if you're interested in participating in the Oakland campaign, please check out fairelectionsoakland.org to learn more. To hear more about how the democracy vouchers work, we interviewed Colleen Echohawk, an indigenous millennial woman who ran for mayor in Seattle's 2021 elections. 
She is exactly the sort of person who could rarely, if ever, run for a high-level political office. But she did, with the help of Seattle's democracy vouchers. Her experience with publicly financed campaigns provides many teachable moments, and we're excited to learn from her about what publicly financed elections look like in action. The interview you are about to hear was conducted by one of California Common Cause's regional redistricting advocates, Kaylin Parache. These vouchers made it possible for me, right? Like, I, I just feel like, yeah, I could, because I know a lot of people in Seattle, I was like, I could get, you know, the signatures I needed to get. I think it was 600 signatures to qualify for the vouchers. And then I could get out there and, and, and hustle up, four hundred, you know, $400,000. And it just made all of the difference. It made it seem really possible. We we got out there and started going for those dollars. And, and we were the first to qualify for the vouchers. Got to see them just coming in. It's a really incredible process. It's, it's a way to um, encourage civil dialogue in just powerful ways. Like I had this one experience where I happened to be down at one of our sites and my old organization, the GCL Club. And I ran into um, some folks who I had known forever who were who had been experiencing homelessness. And they were thrilled to help fund my campaign. Like they have no money, but they have agency. They had dollars now in their hands that they could put towards their candidate, their friend, their relative. And um, I think that for me, for for those folks who have just generally, you know, generally never been able to donate to a campaign, like it's super powerful and, and it feels good for them. And it encourages voting. It encourages participation in the civic dialogue. It's just, it just was, is, was super cool. So I, I, that was one of my favorite memories of the campaigning is just getting to see some folks who just didn't have any money being able to participate and how proud they were to support their friend. It was, it was really heartwarming. Do you think that suddenly having every person become a potential donor maybe made candidates for the mayoral race or just in elections at large in Seattle suddenly think, maybe I don't need to focus on people with money anymore. I should start going out to additional communities because now everybody is a potential donor. Did that maybe expand the the people that were appealed to by candidates? Yeah. Well, it did for someone like me, for sure, because I I don't have, like, the network of rich, wealthy white people. I just don't, right? Like, so I, I did in some ways because I have been doing fundraising for a really long time. And I have, I know some of the really incredible, like, allies to the Native community who have been pouring money into, like, some of the, you know, like, housing that we were building. And they were incredibly great and donated the campaign. But they can only donate a certain amount, right? So for right. us, this is an opportunity to get democracy vouchers and to remind people that they have, they're just on my community. So it was it was just natural that be there to be supportive of um, somebody that they knew and, and loved. So yeah, it, it was it was huge, I think, for not just me, but for all of the campaigns to be thinking about other folks, to not having to be real, so reliant on fundraisers. And it was just, it was really cool. You pointed out that typically in traditional campaigns, you have usually the same set of moneyed interests that people are going to go to. They're typically going to be older. They're typically going to be wealthier. They're typically going to be wider. And obviously that informs the kind of politics that you can have if most of the people giving you money are in a certain socioeconomic demographic group. They have their priorities. So do you think having democracy dollars and then suddenly not relying on that same group of people changed what policies you're able to espouse? I mean, yes, it was... So exciting to to see democracy vouchers coming in from people that we knew in the community, just just my network, right? And knowing that they were 
with their democracy vouchers saying to me, these are the kind of policies that I'm supporting you on, Colleen. And those were specifically around housing um, and homelessness policies. It was around police accountability, which is a, was a huge, huge one for this, this past mayoral race. And it was about, you know, solidarity, frankly, right? Like people were like saying to me with their democracy vouchers and vocally that they were supporting a new kind of leadership, you know? And, and that was um, really powerful because these were voices that traditionally have not been heard in Seattle. You know, Seattle is um, a progressive city, I say in quotes, but it also has been kind of dominated by the same people for a really long time um, because they have the money and the power and any other good people, but it's time to um, see some change and people were really um, saying that with those democracy vouchers. Yeah, I mean, if everyone doesn't have a seat at the table, you don't have equity and you don't have that balance. Yeah, yeah. So I think just to uh, to wrap things up, um, to other cities that are trying to implement their own publicly financed election systems mm-hmm. based on the Seattle model, what advice would you give to these organizations trying to push for democracy dollars and to those cities trying to implement them? What things did you see work in Seattle with the democracy dollar program? And what do you think could have been done better? The first thing I would say to to other cities is like, do it. If you believe in equity, if you believe in um, ensuring that all voices get to have a say in an election, then this is absolutely necessary. And and not only is it important for um, that election, but it also encourages other civic engagement. It also encourages people to go to caucus. It encourages people to go to, you know, a precinct meeting. That happened a lot. Like people were like, you know, had given me the democracy vouchers and we say, hey, we need you to show up at this precinct meeting. And they're like, oh, I don't even know anything about my precinct, right? And because we were, we were on, everything was on Zoom at the time, it was easy for them to connect with that. And so if you want to encourage more in civic engagement in, and you create a real democracy in your city, then this, um, you know, publicly funded elections is absolutely necessary. Now, were there some problems, right? Like every new process has to evolve. It does. Like there are things that we should change. We had, um, we had a couple of candidates who, um, paid signature gathers to, um, actually sign people up for their democracy vouchers. And that was, that was a problem. I think that if, if we are to continue these programs, they need to be, um, organic. They need to be, um, campaign, um, uh, they, they need to come from like the organic energy of a campaign and having signature voucher, signature gatherers out there to collect democracy vouchers, I think is unethical. Um, because, and we saw this happen and actually there was articles written about it saying that, that people didn't know what they were signing. People, the signature gatherer would say, do you want to support, you know, more tiny homes or more, you know, good policy on homelessness? And they would say yes and they'd have them sign the voucher. And that's, that just to me was unethical. All of our vouchers came in. Um, from from the network and from people who are excited about the campaign. Um, and so, and, you know, maybe maybe like there's ways to do it where you do have the signature gathers out there because it is a lot of work. Um, and but, but we have to put some parameters around it. We have to change it so that it, it, people really truly know what they're signing up for. Because again, we miss out on an opportunity. 
If someone doesn't know what they're signing up for, they're not going to watch for it for the next election. Believe me, I now carefully guard my democracy vouchers when they come in. I know how important they are. Everyone in my campaign who who you know believes in, in my platform, and when those come, when those democracy vouchers come in for the next election, they're going to use them. They're going to be paying attention. They're going to feel connected to what's what's working. And so we have to figure out how we collect the democracy vouchers in a way that encourages the continued participation in the democracy. In, in the democratic process. Um, that was just something that we really learned. Um, another thing is education about the about a, a publicly funded campaign. A lot of people had no idea, <laughs> you know, even though it's been around in Seattle for a while now, um, people just didn't know. I mean, I, I know people said, yeah, those came in, but I, you know, just put them on my, on my bookshelf because I don't know what that is. And I don't, you know, and, and they just didn't know um, enough about it. So I think that, you know, community engagement and education about a, about a publicly funded campaigns are, are just essential. And also to be going to the communities that have traditionally been left out of these kind of processes is so important because you'll, you'll see like a level of engagement that is really exciting because they're excited that they get to um, donate to a campaign. So um, those are a few things we learned, but mostly we learned that um, mostly we learned that a publicly funded campaign offers an opportunity for everyone to be involved in a process that could lead to someone being elected that they that they want that they believe in. It's a way, it's a way to undo some of the institutional racism that is just an inherent part of the electric of, of an election process. Um, so. I think it's an essential part of moving our country forward um, is a part of, of how we will see greater equity in our country. With this podcast, we hope that you had a chance to take a deep dive into public financing and its importance in empowering small donors. Things can look grim, but it's important to remember that change is more than just possible. It's actually happening. We can win a democracy that works for all of us. Thank you for listening to the Democracy is Podcast presented by California Common Cause. We hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join us next time for a new episode on a new topic. Research, writing, and editing was done by our team, which includes Maya Chupko, Jose del Rio III, Pedro Hernandez, Kaylin Parache, Kate M., and myself, Alexandra Leal. If you'd like to learn more about the work California Common Cause does, how to get involved, or if you'd like to donate to our work or this podcast, please visit www.commoncause.org forward slash California. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you.